so we're walking down the hall and <laughs> this one of his, his uh, roommates came up. There were three boys in, the, in this room, came up. Hey, Richie, who's this guy? And he grabs me, he had little hands. He grabbed me by the, by the pinky. This is my new pop. Whoa. So I'm gosh. like turning away, trying not to like burst out in tears. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. He was smart. He knew what was going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though he'd he been already told, put was, two and two yeah, together. Yeah. Wow. So this is my new pop. Oh yeah. my gosh. I'm not crying. You're yeah. crying. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Lancelot's Roundtable. We are picking up after the stop of holiday. We had a little bit of a hiatus during holiday, so this is our first recording of 2022, and uh, we are really excited to have everybody listening again and to be back and to be recording. I was talking with one of my friends who's starting a podcast, uh, the first guy on this season, Jason Spears, and he was talking about how he is really missing recording and I've been missing recording. I've been missing the podcast. He's actually recovering from COVID. So that's why you haven't heard his podcast yet. So we're excited for the launch of their podcast this, uh, this year, hopefully within the next couple months. Anyway, uh, I'm excited. We have a very special guest today, Doug Riggle. Doug is the founder and president of Orphan World Relief as an adopted child and later as a single parent who adopted from the foster care system. He understands the needs of kids from all angles. On their website, one orphan is too many is a really great quote. Orphan World Relief was founded in 2008 after Doug experienced firsthand the needs of homeless and orphaned children in Ukraine. Upon returning to the States, further research shed light on the global crisis and the millions of orphaned and at-risk children around the world. What started as an organization designed to help well-run programs in other countries financially has since blossomed into an organization that understands the needs of children in the U.S., and around the globe. While helping educate people on the needs these kids are dealing with every day. Hashtag hope changes everything. I love that hashtag, Doug. I saw it yesterday on the website for the first time. So Doug, welcome to the round table. Thank you, Lance. Great to be here. Yeah. I'm so glad that we were able to finally do this. I've been thinking about asking you, I think for the last year and a half, and it took me that long to ask you <laughs> and to get okay. you on. So yeah, let's just, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is Doug. I have uh, lived in central Ohio since 1987, although I went to high school out in Ronaldsburg and I went to, stepped away for college in Texas and um, been back here ever since. Which uh, college did you go to? I don't U- think I knew that. University of Texas, San Antonio. Oh, okay. All right. Beha County. Why, why San Antonio? So or why Texas? When I was 17, I graduated high school, uh-huh. and my parents said, we're moving to Texas. You can't stay here by yourself. <laughs> I, I had a scholarship to theater scholarship to theater in Otterbein. I didn't know that. And my parents said, you're not living here by yourself. We, I, I had it all worked out. I had a place to stay. I was, and they're like, nope. And they just put their foot down. They put their foot down, and I'm like, I'm still 17. So, so who, okay, so then you go to Texas. Who paid for your education? I did. You paid for your education so, when you had a scholarship. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I paid never more than $500 a semester. Oh, wow. After I became a resident of Texas. 
Is that like a Texas thing? It was. Yeah. Or was a Texas it, thing? It was back in 1983 huh. when I started college. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and that included books, and I was an English major. They didn't have wow. a theater department at the time, so I'm like, okay, what's next? Okay, yeah, I love I reading. To- <laughs> Let's do English. <laughs> I actually thought about English for a second, like majoring English for a second, because, well, I didn't know anything when I went to college, like uh, pretty much about anything, uh, but I, I was like, I want to be a writer. Like, I wanted to write books. Yeah. And so I asked the people, because I started at Columbus State, and they're like, oh, you could do journalism, or you could major in English. And I thought about it and I took a couple English classes. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. It's just college. I have a lot of thoughts on college now being out of it for so long and going through it, but it is hilarious the what we decide to major in and why. Exactly. And we're all just so different. So you majored in, you majored in English, English four years, four years, well, 4.75. Sure. To be. <laughs> sure. I was six. I took and Texas I'm not a history three times before I passed it. Really? It was so boring. I grew up, I mean, I went to school in Ohio, so I had Ohio history in high school. Yeah. And when I got to Texas, they require you to take Texas history. And of course, everyone around me had already taken it because that's where they lived. And I'm like, their claim to fame is that they were their own country for about a year or so Yeah, uh, between Mexico and the United States. And then the only other thing I remember (laughs) of them being bored is um, the very first governor, his... His name was, uh, he was Governor Hogg. Uh-huh. His wife's name was Ima. And I just thought that was hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Ima. No Ima one Hogg. else thought that was funny, but I did, the, the Yankee from the North, so. That's, that's really funny. Did you ever develop an accent while you were there? Uh, no. Actually, when growing up, we lived in different places, and my mom was from Appalachia. My dad's really? from Southern Ohio. Oh, wow. When, when they adopted me, the, my adopted parents. Yeah. And... I had an accent when we moved from Nevada when my dad retired to Ohio, uh-huh. and I got teased so much in school, it took me a while, and I lost the accent. Oh, okay. It comes back when I'm really, really tired, <laughs> or on the very, very massively rare occasion when I've had too much to drink, <laughs> it comes back out. Oh, so, really? Yeah. That's so fascinating. How old were you when you were adopted? Uh, I was a month old. You were a month old, so yeah. infant. Infant, yep. Okay. All right. And then how did they, like, was it just through, like, whatever agency or whatever? They were stationed in Iowa, Waverly, Iowa at the time. and Stationed, they, like, military? Military. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then they, um, mom had had three miscarriages after my sister, and oh, wow. the doctor said, no more. Yeah. Your, your, your body's telling you you can't have any children. Uh-huh. So they adopted me when they were living in Iowa. Wow. Wow. And then they ended up in Ohio. So my dad's family's from Ohio. Got it. We lived in Iowa, um, Nevada. They were stationed in Washington State for a while where they had my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, they were stationed in Mississippi for tech school. Um, trying to think where else they've been. Virginia, where yeah. mom's from. So when dad would go, he repaired radar. Okay. And so when he would go out and repair radar in Alaska usually, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> we would go live with family members sometimes. Not so, in Alaska. Not in Alaska. Yeah. That way we didn't have to Endure freeze. Alaska. Which is sad now because I've always wanted to see it. But I know. Back then, it's like, no, no one went there. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting place. I, there's some people that I know that are in the military. Um, I think he's, uh, yeah, he's career Air Force. Mm. Um, and they've been all over the place. But they, I, th- I don't know how many years they've been in Alaska. But the pictures that they'll post, like a random moose yeah. that they're, that's like going across the road. And then, yeah, like... 
take a picture at two o'clock in the morning and it's still daytime out. Absolutely. Like, yeah, weird stuff like that. That would be hard to get used to daytime at 2 a.m. Our kids would love it. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Okay. So English major and then talk to us a little bit about um well, let's just let's just talk about Orphan World Relief. Sure. Why you why you founded it and what what the purpose of it is. You know, back in 98, I took my first mission trip ever. And uh-huh. I remember a uh, pastor at my church, Chris, um, asked us, asked me if I wanted to go. And I'd never been out of the country before. Well, I'd been to Mexico, technically, just mm-hmm. over the border okay. and into Canada over the border. But I'd never really been out of the U.S. And I thought about it, prayed about it, and like, okay, let's go. Okay. And so we went there. And it's funny because just last night I'm working on a book with a friend of mine, a collaborator, Kevin Gregg out in California. We just went through this section of the book last night for the like second or third time. So you're writing a book too? Yes. Oh, we'll get into that. Okay. We can talk about that. Um, and <laughs> we went over there and we spent a day, um, there was a young man named Pasha and he worked with homeless boys in this little area in Kiev called Idra Park, uh-huh. which is little little island in the middle of the river you get to by train um and we we were there we kicked the you know kicked the ball around i they played soccer i kicked the ball I'm, <laughs> I, I have no sports ability whatsoever <laughs> no depth perception no sports ability at all nice. um so we ended up you know playing with these kids just having a you know, good time with them they were all homeless kids pasha got 145 dollars from an american couple a month that paid for his living expenses and allowed him to do outreach to these homeless boys. Wow. And I spent, you know, we spent the day with them. I shared my testimony with them. Um, you know, the next day we were going to visit an orphanage north of town. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> funny story, we were, we were driving north of town and our driver, Yuri, um, he had made a crack earlier about women drivers. Mm-hmm. So my interpreter refused to interpret anything he said to me um, <laughs> because she was mad at him. <laughs> So I, I asked Yuri, I said, you know, was able to get out in some basic Russian, Ukrainian, where's the orphanage? And he points straight ahead. I'm like, well, that's helpful. And I said, Gidea Chernobyl. I said, where's Chernobyl? He points straight ahead. Then he's wow. like, he's, I could see him like freeze and he turns around in the seat. He's like, we stay short time. I'm like, okay. So anyway. We're, so he took you to the orphanage. He so took then? us to the orphanage. Okay. Um, before we got there, um, we, we took a bus, and we had to meet Yuri in the north part of town. We took a bus, and we actually walked under. Uh, it's been about 20 minutes walking uh, to get there, to, mm-hmm. to meet Yuri, to get the bus, to go to the orphanage. Anyway, sorry, awkward story. Um, <laughs> we walked under a bridge, and I could hear someone call my name. What? I know. I'm like, I'm in the middle of Ukraine, and no one except for the people around me know who I am. Yeah. And then I'm like, I'm just hearing things. And then finally, I heard this little voice, Douglas. I turned around, and the bridge we had just walked under, um, in the rafters of the bridge were the boys that we had spent the day with the day before. No way. And they slept under the bridge that night. Wow. And that was the moment God's like, you're not going to go back to the U.S. and not do something about this. Wow. And I'd already been thinking of adopting. Mm. And so this was during that same time frame. I'm like, okay, I know I, I, know I, you know, I need to adopt. I'd planned on adopting... I was married before. Mm-hmm. I wanted to adopt. My wife wanted to have her own natural kids. Um, and so there was some conflict there. And I'm like, but now I'm single. Yeah. Well, I, I can't adopt, which 
that changed. I changed my mind. That was just like a mindset that you yeah, had. Yeah, was a like mindset I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because uh, I knew it'd be hard because my best friends, Rick and Nancy, had adopted three girls and then a fourth girl. Oh, that was after they adopted theirs. Right about the same time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All and right. they were just in the process and they were still probably in the honeymoon period. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I didn't have any warning signs telling me not to. But, um, <laughs> um, but it's still, you know, I, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's still the right thing to do and what uh, I felt God calling me to do. But I also realized I needed to do something broader. Because mm. growing up, I didn't know anyone adopted. I didn't know any orphans. I just thought I was the only one. Oh, really? And I had no clue that there were millions upon millions of kids in this world who are orphaned, um, abandoned, needing, you know, uh, kids at risk who mm-hmm. are right, right on the brink of being orphaned um, mm-hmm. or abandoned. Um, so after that trip, I came back here and I started to the United States and started researching and figuring out, oh my gosh, 147 plus million kids orphaned that they can count how uh, many 147 million 147 million kids globally yeah in the united states in foster care there's about 400,000 kids at any one time wow that's not even i was surprised because i saw that on your website and for some reason in my head it was a larger number so to me it's almost like it's i i think i just had the thought like oh like there could be a bigger impact potentially right because there's not, I thought it would be millions of kids in the foster care, but in the U.S., 400,000. Well, if you think about the kids in foster care system, every year about 20,000 of them age out. Got it. So every year there are 20,000 kids who are now without a family, without any support structure, which is one of the programs that we're building right now. It's called Foster to Adult yep. that we're getting off the ground to help some of these kids who, in some cases, are falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the children's services um, county agency where we are at currently. Um, I don't have the exact numbers and, you know, I would probably might get sued if I say this out loud, but some of the things that they're doing is pulling kids out of foster care and before they're 18 and reuniting them with their families, then they're out, then they're out of the system. They're no longer counted as a number. And then they turn 18 though. They're with a family that, you know, neglected or abused them before and now they're back on their own again. But like, not- is that going back into a good situation, or is no. that okay? No, yeah, it's not. But it's a way to clear the books and save money. Oh wow! And it's it's really, I'd love to find a good investigative reporter to kind of do some digging. Um, I would love it if we had more investigative reporters these days. I, I would love yes, if we, we had them. Yes, anyone who's actually a reporter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> An actual reporter. They don't exist anymore like they did, used to. Right. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. If only, hey, somebody out there hearing this podcast. Here you go. You just yeah. got your life We calling. encourage you. Yeah. Um, Come talk to me. Okay. So let's talk about, let's, I mean, you mentioned a few things there. So let's talk about, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit curious about your childhood. So let's maybe start there. Like, when did you figure out that you were adopted? <laughs> like, what is that even like? I was in fifth grade uh-huh. and my parents pulled me into the kitchen and my dad paced back and forth, and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. What did I do wrong? <laughs> it's like you can yeah, feel spank it. Spank me and get, get it over <laughs> with now. Whatever I did wrong, mom would start to speak, and she'd start crying. I'm like, oh, man. They're getting a divorce, but that doesn't happen. This is the 70s. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. all these thoughts going through a kid's mind. And then finally, you know, they came out with it. And I, I realized later in life that it was my dad pushing my mom. We need to tell Doug that he's adopted. Okay. Um, everyone else knew. 
Sure. So they figured it was going to come out. Did your sister knew? Oh, yeah. She, she was, did. She was nine years old when they adopted me. Got it. So, so she yeah. had to know. She was, yeah. Uh, she, I would get her in trouble later. And um, when, uh, Mom and Dad, Debbie said that I'm, I'm not her brother. Oh, she'd get in big trouble for, <laughs> for saying that. For saying that. Even if she said it or she didn't say it, I, sure. sometimes I knew that could get her in trouble. <laughs> so you, you had that lever. I had that lever yeah. over her. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I was fifth grade wow. and I was told I was adopted. I remember... They told me on a Sunday night, Monday morning, I went to school and we were doing these little Mendelian genetic square things about eye color. Okay. And to figure out your mom has blue eyes, your dad has brown eyes, what possible color combinations. And I'm like, I don't want to fail this assignment. So I went up to the teacher while we were like working on some of the stuff there. And I'm like, I'm adopted. I said, this, this may not work for me. I don't want to get a bad grade. So... This is Salpetra in front of the entire class. said, hey, everyone, Doug's different than the rest of us. He's what? adopted. Come on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I And I was a shy kid, and I just, like, wanted to crawl into a hole. Oh, yeah. my god. And then at lunchtime, I had kids asking me questions. You know, are you a bastard? I didn't know what the word meant. What? Yeah. I, so I'm like, I, I'm like, no. <laughs> I didn't know what the word oh, meant. Geez. I had to look it up when I got home. Um, in fifth grade, in fifth grade, and Jeez. you know, ask me questions about who my family were, and I'm like, you know, I, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I had no information. They, my parents told me when I turned 18, they would share with me about who my, what they knew about my biological family. Interesting. Which they didn't. They didn't. No, I, I snuck into their, their uh, room and broke into the little metal filing cabinet and got the information to myself when I was 19. Oh wow. Yeah, I mean, you well, you yeah. were more patient than I think I yeah. would have yeah. been. So, but when you're fifth grade, your parents tell you that. Yes. What is that like? It there's parts of it that I'm like, okay, some of this makes sense now. Oh, sure. I never knew my dad liked me, much less loved me, until I was out of college. Wow. Now I I know now he does. He did. You know, he, he's passed since. Um, but growing up, I just always felt that there was a disconnect. Interesting. Part, partly because I didn't understand his love language. Okay. His love language was giving me things. And so okay. I, I remember one time, I was probably 30, he had this hideous lamp. My, my dad went blind after like his second open heart surgery. He would go antique shopping with my mom and he'd you know spend money on things that he didn't need. But he had this lamp that was just absolutely hideous, but he loved it. <sighs> and he wanted to give it to me and I didn't take it. And that hurt him. Oh, wow. Because I was rejecting his love is basically, right. you know, I, I, you know, I wish I'd, you know, know now what I knew then, but sure. Or knew then what I know now. Yeah. Well, hindsight's always, it is way easier yeah. than not hindsight. Okay. So I can't, I just can't imagine being in fifth grade and having a truth bomb dropped on you and then being in the middle of a class and a teacher pulling a stunt like that. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. 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 That's okay. That's just <laughs> unreal. All right. So back, back to the timeline, 98. You come back, you're doing research. Tell me about how you were doing your research, because this isn't... 98, I think we had the internet, right? But it wasn't anything Barely. like it is now. No, no. I, you know, part of it was talking to people, and part of it... So I actually then started the, the adoption process myself to get certified to adopt, because um, you, you can go through the entire class and process and not actually adopt, but sure. I'd like, I want to learn more. And fortunately, I mean, I learned a lot about... Um, kids, waiting kids in the U.S. and in America. But it wasn't until talking with other people that I was connected with at church and other places that I learned about 
um, orphanages and what the needs were. Mm-hmm. I, and I, that second day in Ukraine, I'd actually visited a different orphanage. And so I, I got to see firsthand a very well-run orphanage. Um, there's a story I, I'm telling in the book about a little girl named Masha and her brother who were, um, when they were six and seven, it's right at the fall of communism in 91. Mm-hmm. It, it's that, that weird perspective. Here in America, we're all cheering. Communism has fallen. Mm-hmm. Over there, it's 45% unemployment. Mm-hmm. So these parents are making the decision, do we watch our kids starve to death because we both lost our jobs, or do we do something about it? So what they did is they taught their six-year-old daughter to become a prostitute. Oh, my gosh. And they, they, they drank heavily, and this is the little girl in the orphanage with her brother. Um, and then later on, you know, because they were drinking so much of the money away, they sent their son out to work as a sex worker as well, who was, you know, seven years old. Jeez. So the kids ran away. Um, fortunately, sadly, though, to live on the streets, all they knew how to do was sell their bodies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got these now at this point, eight, nine-year-olds selling their bodies to strangers. Horribly dangerous, obviously. Um, yeah. And this is before we had this, you know, big understanding of child sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, they, someone from the orphanage that they were at found them and brought them in. It took psychologists over a year's worth of work with the little girl just to teach her to have fun and play oh, like a little wow. girl. Um, so I got to see the, the positive results of what a good program could do. Because mm. orphanages get a horrible rap. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, orphanages were gone probably in the set by the 70s in the United States as well. And mm. we went moved to a foster care system by and large. Okay. And so it's... Never thought about that. Yeah. We don't yeah, have orphanages in no. the States. We probably threw the babies out with the bathwater. Right. Because at least in orphanages is permanency. Yeah. I'm here. I'm not going from house to house to house. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. you know, by the time I adopted my son... I, he, from age five to age 13, when I got him, he was in about 15 different foster home placements. Jeez. Yeah. That to me did as much damage to him as the reasons that he was taken from his biological family to begin with. For sure. I mean, it's, think about that. There's no permanency there. There's no, you know, you're in a new house one day. There are new rules. Right. Yeah. And you're a New relationships. New relationships. And these people are supposed to take care of you. There's some great foster parents out there. Yeah. But the ones who are like, okay, we're going on vacation now. Come take these kids, and they put them in into the place. I'm like, they're doing more harm, yeah. right, than good, right. So let's talk about a couple of the programs Orphan World Relief does. Sure. Let's talk about. Um, well, you can talk about them in any order <laughs> that you want. So we st- started out the all of our programs to begin with were international, uh-huh. and we came alongside programs that were well run and wanted to provide financial support for them. Because they didn't have, they were small, but they didn't have a lot of like U.S. support. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to be able to tell their story. At the same time, we came alongside some of them too and helped them become more self-sufficient. Got it. So, for example, in Honduras, um, Casa Garvida, we worked with them to help them set up a chicken and cattle farm, an orphanage, and at the orphanage. Wow. So that the kids can learn a trade. They are producing protein that's needed for everyone. Yeah. Excess. So you've got beef, milk, chicken, eggs. Excess protein can be sold to the community to make them more self-sufficient. Wow. It's just an amazing program. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's, it's a, just fabulous. They're kind of like our hallmark of what a good program is because it's not just an insular little program where you send money to orphans. It is right. a program that involves the church. They have a block. The church 
works with block factories. Everything becomes part of the organism that helps the kids there. There's also a nutrition center in Limon nearby mm-hmm. that helps kids and families with provide better nutrition to their kids. Which I've been to, by the way, when I was Is, 15. That's the one that you went to. I that's didn't Limon. know that. That's where I went. Tell us that's about it. That's the picture downstairs. So I was 15. I was there for a week. And there was a group of people that were working, building walls. But then there was a, a second, like, smaller group that was going to go over to the nutrition center. Okay. So I was like, yeah, that's me. That's me. And I knew a little bit of Spanish, like enough to talk to little kids. And, I mean, they just they cling to you. They yeah. surround you with all of this. I need love. I want love. But also, this is like my one meal a day. And I'm just, you can tell they're, they're so hungry for everything. Everything. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's, it's, it was phenomenal. I've got some great pictures of the office. Of, there's one of me and one kid on a teeter-totter and like eight kids on the other side of the teeter-totter. It's just, it's just a great... It's, <laughs> like you're doing so, the teeter-totter yeah. with eight other kids. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great program there. Who, who came up with the idea for that program? Was that you? No, 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 no. That's that was also run by uh, Giovanni, the guy who started the church. He started the Got orphanage. It. He was a doctor, still uh-huh. is a doctor. So he wanted to work with HIV kids. Then the nutrition center came about, um, and it's all this big collaborative effort. They've got a block factory. They've got a sustainable tree farm. They have two tortilla factories in the city. Uh-huh. Um, they've got a, a row of houses that they work with women who have HIV. Wow. And the women sew and make purses. Every time I go there, I buy a, a ton of purses and bring them back. They're really sure. beautiful. And I'm like, these would sell like crazy here in America for a good amount if yeah. we could get them to commoditize that a little bit more. But that's um, so that's such a good idea. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. But just hearing about the whole ecosystem. Yeah. That can build like can be sustainable and Yeah, you're wow. you're learning responsibility and like you said, learning a trade. That's huge. Yeah. There was a orphanage in North Africa and I really I've been trying to find the information about it. I read about it back in like 2000. And they teach the kids to tend the vineyards. Mm -hmm. And the adults produce wine and sell that. And everything has become become self-sufficient. And the kids then can go, when they leave the orphanage, they want to tend grapevines, they get 30 bucks an hour. Right. I mean, that's a good skill they have. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's so awesome. So it started off as international. How did how long did it take you from '98 till till like you were able to found Orphan World Relief? 2008, so a decade. Wow. So I needed to. I mean, I, I had to put a lot of thought behind it. Figure out who I was going to serve on my initial board. Yeah. How I was going to structure things so that we were different than other organizations, so we could differentiate ourselves, so people would want to donate to us. Yeah. So with our international programs, we don't just we don't do child sponsorships. Um, which everyone asks us to do. I'm like, the infrastructure to do a child sponsorship is outrageously expensive. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with them for the larger organizations, Compassion, all of those. They're, they're great, but you have to pay for someone to ship the items to the kids, right. translate letters back and forth, and go take pictures so you have current pictures of these kids every year. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, okay, we, we can't afford that. that. Yeah, that's a lot of infrastructure. Yeah. It is a lot of infrastructure. So I... I I jokingly refer to us as kind of like the wholesale club for orphans. Um, I love that though. Cause it's, we deal in bulk Yeah, and we, we want to have the maximum impact. So we have a, a spreadsheet right now. We have like seven programs internationally that we support. Okay. Um, every time, like once a quarter, we send out money to the programs and we take like, let's say we have $10,000 to send out. Mm-hmm. We, I, I, it goes into a spreadsheet that factors in the number of kids being impacted. Mm-hmm. 
the cost of living for that area of the world mm -hmm. um, and their annual budget. Mm -hmm. So we never give more than 20% of their annual budget because we never want anyone 100% dependent on us. Makes sense. Um, because if we fail, they fail. We don't want, ever want that to happen. And that yeah. happens quite a bit. Um, sure. But then they each get each quarter equal buying power. So like St. Petersburg, Russia is one of the more expensive places where the harbor is located. And so th they may actually get the bulk of the money, but they get the same buying power as um, the three programs that we support in Honduras. Got it. And the same program we support in India, um, Ukraine, and Russia. Got it. Okay. And then when you're, when you're doing all of this, the decade before you're able to found it, what's your day job? <laughs> uh, let's see. So I was working at uh, an insurance company here in Columbus. I, um, I left there in 2011, which is the, the year we got our 501c3 status. We had been doing work before then for our nonprofit, but everything was retroactive, which was great um, as far as donations. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, um, at that time, I was IT human resources. Got it. Okay. And I was a communications expert there. So figuring out how to start up a nonprofit was just on uh, like a side gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, so and there are like there are different ways to set up a board. Mm -hmm. um, you can find people who are passionate about what you're passionate about and can come alongside and support your vision, or people with deep pockets. Sure. Uh, part of me is like I should have chose the people with deep pockets, but I didn't. <laughs> I I picked you know three people, uh, Rick and Nancy, who were my best friends, and my buddy Steve. They were the original three board members. He was my personal trainer for a while. Got it. They came alongside and supported everything that I did and yeah. helped me make decisions as we grew. Now we've got a board membership of about 10 people. Wow. Um, in different parts of the U.S. and in Honduras as well. Wow. Um, so it's, it's been an amazing growth since then. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the impact that you've had is that the, or that the organization's had is probably quite... Thousands of kids. Yeah. Over over all of the years that wouldn't have that wouldn't have been positively impacted without, yeah, it just kind of blows my mind that you, it it's almost like it was just this process that was kind of like laid out. You go on a trip, and that basically is like essentially plants a seed, yeah. and then eventually that seed over time. I mean, you obviously did work, you know, right. to to come back and do all the research and learn. Yep. You adopted during that time, yep. and so you're raising. Uh, a kid during that time as well. And then you had the ability to, you know, launch this thing that's still going on now and is, and has grown. So, um, tell me about the book that you're writing. <laughs> so right now, uh, Kevin and I have been working on this for over a year. This now. is Kevin from California. Kevin from California, Kevin Gregg, um, amazing, amazing guy. I've been so blessed. I found him through a company called Upwork. And I, I interviewed about seven people. I've been asked to write this book by people off and on about, it's basically my life story. Sure. And how God has used things in my life to help push me forward and to learn to weather the storms of life. Um, mm. So the book's called right now, I'd Rather Be a Buffalo. Interesting. So when a storm comes, cows will run along with the storm and just get drenched. <laughs> okay. Buffalo will run into the storm so they get through it on the other side faster. No way. And I'm like, that is a great way for the way I've been, God has been orchestrating my life. And I'm like, okay. Wow. So instead of like shying away from topics, so, you know, if we get to the topic of my son, 
later on, he committed suicide 14 years ago, wow. um, the one I adopted. And I tell the story over and over again. It was actually two weeks before Christmas. And at Christmas time, I remember sitting you know, with my family and everyone's walking on eggshells and no one's talking about Richie. And he had just passed. Wow. Like, in, in my mind, like this is unnatural. So I started telling stories. And I started, oh, yeah, Richie would have loved this. Or I remember Barb when, you know, his cousin, like when you guys did this and you got stuck on 270, didn't know where to get off, and you drove around 273 times. <laughs> you know? I've done that before. <laughs> it, it's, storytelling is so healing. Yeah. And, you know, and I look yeah. at the Bible. The Bible is full of stories. And not, not clean ones either. No, no. Yes. Life is messy. Very messy. Yeah. Talk, let's, let's go ahead and talk about Richie. Yeah. You adopted him at 13. Adopted him at 13. I knew Richie. Yeah. Um, he, he and your brother used to, uh, hang out quite a bit. Sean. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got great memories of them camping. We had, there was a storm came up during the one time we were camping and I'm like, I got up and got out of the tent. I was sharing a tent, I think with Rick and my buddy James. And, um, I got in my Jeep cause I couldn't sleep. So I'm, I'm laying there in the Jeep and the storm comes up and then I look over and I see what used to be a tent is now Richie and Sean flailing about. <laughs> Trying to stay dry as yeah. you know, and Amazing. keep the tent up well, yep. during this whole time. Whose tent was that? I think it was your brother's. Oh, geez. <laughs> hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. So, like, yeah, we, we grew up, Sean and I grew up in our family, my brother and my dad, my two brothers and my dad. I got two older brothers, Todd and Sean, and then my dad. We always used to camp. And there's something about the weather nodes when you're camping. Yeah. Was, I don't know how many times we set up tents in the rain. Just got absolutely, and like, to me, looking back on that, if I had been the dad in that situation, I'd been like, all right, we're done. We're leaving. <laughs> Not my dad. Yeah. It's like, we're here. We're, we're, we're two camping. nights. We're camping. We're camping, yes. Whether, whether the rain stops or not. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah. So you had, you had Richie at age 13. Yep. For some reason, I thought he was younger. Um, tell, us, tell us that story, finding Richie. So oddly enough, the year before I had been through the adoption process and there was another young man named Jason from Ironton, Ohio, that I was going to adopt. Okay. And he was 17. I was kind of his last hope to have a family. And then I um, was taking him down. He, he would come up and spend the weekends with me. I was taking him down. It was getting close to him moving in with me. Uh-huh. And he, on the drive down, he's like, I, Doug, I just need to tell you that I don't want to be adopted. Hmm. And so I started probing a little bit, like, okay, can you tell me more? What you know? And he's like, it's not you. He's like, I just don't want to be adopted. Um, and so I dropped him off at his foster home, called the social worker right away. This is a Sunday evening, and she called me right back. And so then she went and talked to him, and she couldn't get anything out of him other than he didn't want to be adopted. Interesting. And he wanted to stay where he was at mm. in Ironton, Ohio. And so I'm like, okay, heartbroken, for mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. Um, investing a lot of time. And she's just like, just make a clean break. It's like, I'm like, okay, that's easy to say. It's hard to do. Right. But okay. I, I took her advice. She's a social worker. I took her advice and I, you know, I didn't have any contact with him for a couple of years. Actually, he actually contacted me um, after I'd adopted Richie. Wow. I went down to see him. Come to find out his girlfriend was pregnant and he didn't want to leave her. Got it. Wow. So I'm like, okay, dude, totally honor that. Yeah, I wish you had said something. I said we could have figured something out, but at the same time, you know, respect your desire to stay there with your girlfriend. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so then, then I'm like, okay, is this God's way of telling me don't adopt? And so I'm like, 
go about life working. And I um, remember one day I went upstairs to do something. I had this old house on campus, um, two story. And I, I go upstairs and I, I look over in the room, which was Jason's, um, which he would have had. And I saw my, my dog, Max. I had a collie, Max at the time, mm-hmm. laying on the bed where Jason was. And the only time Max ever laid on that bed was when Jason was there. Hmm. And I just started bawling my eyes out. Oh my gosh. I was like in tears. Yeah. I'm like, I still want to be a father. Yeah. And I was still had plenty of time on my adoption certification to go ahead and adopt. So I'm like, okay, let me start this process again. Oh, wow. So you put your, you basically just put yourself back out there yeah. essentially. Yeah. So you go through the whole process. How long was that process with Jason? Would you say? It was about seven months. Seven months getting to know him, yeah. thinking that, okay, I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be my kid. Yeah. You have that in your brain. And then he's like, no. And then that's crushing. Yeah. And then now you're like, okay, I'm going to put myself out there again. That's one thing I think I, I never realized. Okay, so there's a couple observations I think I can make. Any, anybody and everybody that I know that has adopted or thought about adopting, it's usually been something that's been in their their mind that they want to do for a long, long, long time. Right. And then it is a long process, and you are really putting yourself out there. Yes. Um, I know people that thought they were going to adopt, and it didn't, and it felt like death. Yes. Is that was it similar to you? Very similar. Unreal. Yeah. Okay. So so. So you're, you're back. I'm, I'm going to put myself out there again. Yep. By this time, um, AdoptUS um, website was up and running, and you could see kids available for adoption. Wow. So I was looking, I mean, I was paying attention to kids from quite a, quite a few states away because the adoption certification in Ohio was good for a couple of other states. Got it. Um, but then I saw this little boy with you know big sticky out ears up in Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. and... I contacted a social worker. She contacted me. We talked on the phone quite a bit. Um, and so I'm like, she was being very hesitant. What mm-hmm. I come to find out um, like about a month later is that he had been through a failed adoption too. Oh, wow. So the family that were going to adopt him, this is horrible. Um, they brought him into their home and then they changed their mind. And so that what they did... The, they lied, uh-huh. and they said that he sexually abused their daughter. What? Oh, they admitted later on that they lied, but he was devastated. That's horrible. Yeah. Well, it's like people, people don't realize what they do to kids, and it's just... No kidding. Um, so they like, we need to make sure you're on the up and up, and we need to make sure this isn't going to fail. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking to you before we even let you get to meet him. Okay. Which, fair enough. Yeah. I, I totally get sure. it. They sent, me, they sent me his paperwork. Oh, my gosh. It took me a day to put the paperwork in, because there's no structure or order to anything. Okay. This is when everything's physical paper, too. So oh, I've got wow, yeah. four binders, like three-inch binders of paperwork that I first put in date order so I could read his story from end to end and figure out, you know, there were duplicates, wow. and I had to go through this and that, and like, oh, my gosh. Um uh. So I read his, you know, his, his file. Wow. And then I, you know, I'm like called Kim, his social worker up and said, Hey, you know, let's, I, I, let's go forward with this. So then she had me come up and we had a meeting with 
two of his teachers, he was living in a residential home in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in foster care system anymore. Well, he was in the foster care system, but at a residential home, uh, Cleveland Christian home. Okay. And I go up there and meet with them. And she's like, look, because of his background, let's just, you know, you can come up every weekend, spend the weekend with him here. We'll say that you're here to mentor him. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's fair. And she's like, I, she's like, I'm just being protective. I'm like, no, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, so she brought him into this room and the three of us sat and talked for a little bit. And then we go to the gymnasium there at Cleveland Christian home and we're playing horse or something. And again, it's sports related and I'm lousy. So I lost, um, <laughs> even Kim, the little, you know, four foot two social worker beat me. Um, but that's okay. Nice. And then she's like, let me give you the two of you a chance to, to talk. And she's like, Hey Richie, why don't you take Doug to see your room? I'm like, okay. Yeah, this is great. Uh-huh. So we're walking down the hall. And this one of his, his uh, roommates came up. There were three boys in, the, in this room, came up. Hey, Richie, who's this guy? And he grabs me, he had little hands. He grabbed me by the, by the pinky. This is my new pop. Whoa. So oh I'm gosh. like turning away, trying not to like burst out in tears. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. He was smart. He knew what was going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though he'd he been told. He put two and two yeah, together. Yeah. Wow. So this is my new pop. Oh yeah. my gosh. I'm not crying. You're yeah. crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so then, you know, a uh, few months later. So the odd thing was I'd already gotten my tickets and promised to go to Ukraine for a month that next year, which is right around when the adoption, when he was going to move in with me. So Got I it. had to, he had to stay there for an extra month at the, at the Cleveland Christian home uh-huh. while I was in Ukraine and I remember I got there like, we need, they got a hold of me and said, we need you to call the United States and talk to Richie. Like, oh. While you're in Ukraine? While I'm in Ukraine. Oh, wow. I don't remember how much that phone call cost, but it was expensive. <laughs> this is back before cell phones and everyone had long distance oh, service. Yeah. Um, so I, I called there and I said, what happened? His teacher, one of his teachers was so connected with him that she was, she was acting out. Why do adults do this? She was acting out and she was pushing his buttons to get him to respond so that maybe the adoption would fall through and he would stay stay? there. Yeah. And because he got so mad at her, he took his shoe off and hit her with it. I mean, threw it at her and beamed her good. Yeah. Social worker got on the phone after I talked to Richie and calmed him down because I was, I'd only been there a week. Yeah. I had three more weeks to go. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, I got the whole story. The teacher instigated that Richie's not in any trouble. It's like, I just, she's like, I wanted you to talk to him. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, we were good. Um, and then so my, my, my work was, was lovely. They gave me a month off to go to Ukraine. I already worked that out the year before. <laughs> then I go come back home and Richie the next weekend moves in with me. So I had, I went to work for a week and then I took six weeks off. Wow. For a parental leave. Right. And, Got to got all the way up till um, he started school. Was that a company perk? It was a company perk. Wow, six, good job, company. Six weeks. Yeah, <laughs> the first two companies I were, I think I've only worked for both of these companies. Two, yes. But the first, uh, both of them, they didn't have paternity leave until our youngest, right? Yes, you oh, had wow. no paternity leave until our third child. Yeah, this was 1999. 1999, wow. and wow. I was on the Y2K project. So, oh sure. <laughs> oh my <laughs> yes. gosh. Y two K, yeah, I turned uh, I turned eighteen in ninety nine, so I I was getting ready to go into college, but I remember the Y two K thing. I think my dad bought a generator, 
<laughs> to be prepared. Classic. Nice. And nothing happened. I mean, thankfully, yeah. nothing happened, but that's that's really funny. So Richie moves in with you. You get six weeks off. What what was it like? Just tell us about that process of for both of you. It, so the, you always go through the honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. Everything was great. He loved everything I made. The kid could eat like anything. Oh my oh, gosh! I yes. forgot. Doug is an amazing cook. Oh, I know this. Uh, like I've amazing. Heard, cook. I've heard many a story. When I was in college, cooking. you went and did something, and you asked me to like stay at your place and watch your dogs. I don't remember where you went. This was a long time ago. Oh wow! I was in. Was I in college or high school? I don't remember, but. Yeah, you made you made pierogies. Oh yeah, yeah. I had never had a pierogi, and you were like, you told me about it, and then you made pierogies, and that was one of the best meals I've ever had. It was so good. Angie Voltman makes homemade pierogies. So mm. Really? Gonna say we trade at Christmas time. I give her a tray of baklava. She gives me bags of frozen pierogies. So oh, that's adorable. That's they're amazing. they're amazing. Angie. You make baklava? Yeah. Oh, I bet you it's. I mean, wow. Ridiculously it's, good. It's so easy. Is it really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It just sounds fancy. I guess. He says it's I easy. I'd Doug probably, says it's I'd easy. I'd probably light myself on fire. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, the honeymoon phase. You get a honeymoon phase. He likes everything you're cooking. Yeah. And, you know, we were doing great. He entered school. This is this is where the, the odd stuff comes in. Like, because he came from so long in foster care, mm-hmm. age 5 to 13, they put him in the most restrictive school in Columbus. Mm-hmm which was he'd come home every day with stories of kids jumping out windows and running away. And, and so every day I'd go there, I'd, I'd walk him to his classroom. I'd go there, I'd pick him up from his classroom. Uh-huh. Um, work was great. They're like, yeah, you can get off early to go do that. Um, wow. Because, like, yeah, this isn't when you can work from home. No, 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 no. Like it is now. So this is like the third week there at the school, and I'm, I kept pushing him, like, he needs to be in a better school. This does not make sense. He's not a bad kid or an right. offender and everything. You're just going on the fact that he came from foster care. That's so terrible. Yeah, that's not fair. And one of the teachers one day stopped me and said, Hey, you're Richie's father, aren't you? I'm like, yeah. Like, he's not going to be here much longer. I'm like, Oh good. Are you one of his teachers? And he's like, no, he's like, but you're the only parent I've ever seen come in. Oh, wow. So all these kids are here without any family support. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, he wasn't there much longer than he entered uh, middle school near our house on Indianola. Got it. Got it. Time. Wow. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just it's it's an amazing it's an amazing story. You you I don't even think I knew you were adopted. Maybe I did. Maybe it was just out of my mind. But the fact that you were adopted, like your parents telling you when you're in fifth grade. <laughs> And then dealing with that, and then the school thing happening, and then having it in the back of your mind, I'm going to adopt. Plus, doing the orphanage thing, it's such a, it's such an amazing story. Because I mean, Kim Kim said to me before that she could potentially adopt. I've always been like, I don't see that. Which is almost like what, like kind of like I said earlier. It's almost like everybody that I know that's like going to adopt. It's been in their mind since before, like before college. Yeah. I would say. Um, and they're always like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to adopt. It's such, it's such an amazing selfless thing to do. And it is really putting yourself out there. And the fact that you're choosing to give a person love unconditionally, and you don't know if they're going to return that necessarily. It's just such a, such a fascinating concept to me. So I guess maybe, um, I don't want to go. We're good. Make sure. Okay, we're good. About 15 more. Okay. Um, can you just, 
just tell me like, and walk me through and the listeners through the why behind adoption, I guess. What, 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 why for you? Why, why adoption for you? You described it perfectly. It's the same way that God brings us into his family. Mm. It's the exact same way. Unconditional love towards someone who's may not be deserving, mm. but because of who they are, still needs that unconditional love. Wow. Just because they exist. Yeah. Every child deserves a family. Yeah. And I, I, my biggest complaint, so I've been going to different churches and speaking in different, you know, pastors conferences and talking to, you know, people from pastors from 30, 40 churches. And I've only ever had one church ever really step up to support what I do. Seriously. Yeah. It's the one I go to. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's, it's heartbreaking because to me, God's called us to care for widows and children. Yeah. You know, James one twenty seven. Um, and we're not doing it as a church. Mm-hmm. We're not stepping up to take kids into, and this, and this is where, you know, at the risk of sounding horrible, I love the fact that, especially in the church, people have big families, mm-hmm. but if they could make room for just one, one child, mm-hmm. if, if one person and, you know, a single, I'll, I'll say person in every church in America adopted from foster care, we'd wipe out the number of kids available for adoption in foster care overnight. Mm-hmm. One person from every one church in America, every yeah. church. Yeah. Um, and then Not we every could, family, just one church yeah. in all the churches in America. Yeah. yeah. Melody said something like that on the yep. podcast. If, yeah, she said if one, if there was one host family in every single church that they would right. wipe out the, do you know her, their, that program, My Village Ministries, Melody Marshall? We, we partner with them. You do? Bit. Yeah. They're yeah. actually going to do some training for our new foster to adult program. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's that's unbelievable. It's one family from every church mm-hmm. step up. And then the one thing that she had brought up in, in our podcast that I, I'm sure you'd agree with is the fact that if, if there was one family that did it, you would have all of the other families, hopefully, or a majority of the families there ready to support and help out. Absolutely. Tell us about that. Did you have support when you... Oh, yeah. Tell us what that was like. So... The one thing I always tell people when they adopt, make sure you have a good support system underneath you. Mm. So obviously I had built-in support with Rick and Nancy. Yep. I was Uncle Doug to their, you know, one, two, three, four, five kids. Yeah, five, yeah. Um, including Jordan. Um, and I was the, the person, so when they would go away, they needed a respite care, the two of them. i go watch the kids for them for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'd be bringing my dogs and Richie in tow, and we'd... Have you know that fifteen passenger van to get us from place to place? There you and, go. Wait, who who had that? They did. They did. They yeah. had that van. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, it was huge, um, and it was a little terrifying to drive. I like driving small cars. Yeah, it's basically the size of a living room. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> but you know, they they were you know we were each other's support system through a lot of that. Yeah, um, my family as well, um, and I by that time I adopted Richie. I knew my biological mother. And father, and had a great relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so I would, you know, he would go with me to Colorado. He went with me once to Iowa to visit my my biological dad. My dad put him on the back of his mule. He'd never been on an animal before in his life, and he's wait. He had a mule. Yeah. Why on the farm? Oh, on the farm. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Nice. 
<laughs> so he got to ride on a mule? He got to ride on a mule, yeah. Not everybody can say that. That's no. true. Um, wow. Yeah, and then um, I guess the other thing, can you just talk about, like, so my understanding is in order to foster care and to adopt, you have to take classes. There's several classes Correct. you got to take. Yep. How long is that process? Does it vary? It varies by agency. Okay. Um, so like right now in Ohio, the state uh, county agencies have outsourced a lot of that work to smaller organizations that do, you know, adoption and foster care, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is great. It's, it, it spreads out the, the, uh, availability of classes for people to come and take quite a bit. So it's not just one organization. When I took it, it was Franklin County Children's Services. I had to go downtown once a week and sit through classes, then the home study and all yeah. that. And usually by the time you get to the home study, you've got, I believe, a, a, this home study may be um, applicable for up to a, a year and a half, okay, two years, okay, to, to go through the finalization for adoption yeah, um, or foster care, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, people that are interested in learning more, what's the best way for somebody to learn more about adopting? Go to uh, adoptuskids.org. I believe that's the website. I may be wrong. Okay. Um, and they'll they'll walk you through U.S. waiting kids. You can see pictures. I can't go there anymore because it's just heartbreaking. Because mm. when I was adopting before I got Richie, I'd go, I'd be out there every week and I'd see these kids and I'd watch them over months grow up, you know, Oh wow! without homes, without families. And it was just, you know, you see kids back from when I was, you know, going to adopt Jason, you know, then two years later, now these kids are still there and now they're two years older and it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, that, that's something to even bring up. Cause I'm curious, you've been doing this for years. You've seen, like I don't, I don't have to know about kids that need to be adopted. I don't because if I don't want to, I just can turn my head away. Right. You've been looking at it for years now. Yes. How has it? How have you? Um. What What do you call that when you you see something you jaded? How have you not been? How are you not jaded by what you've seen? I'm not jaded by the kids and their stories. I'm jaded by the response of adults. Mm-hmm. And I might start with all this, you know, my parents didn't make the best decision waiting until I was in fifth grade. I wish they'd been telling me since I was born. Sure. Um, just make that part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. The kid, you know, the, the parents of Masha and her brother in Ukraine who taught their kids to be prostitutes. Of course, they were in a situation either we watch our kids starve to death or become prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, a decision I never have to make. Um, you just see the, the adults are the ones who ultimately make these decisions. Right. Um, and they do it from not always the best perspective. It may be a financial perspective. It may be um, a practical, in their mind, perspective. Mm-hmm. It may be a, I like my comfort life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, adopting isn't comfortable. Yeah. Um, but that's why I, I come back to the church and say, you guys were adopted by God. Right. You didn't deserve it. Right. These kids do deserve to have a home. Yeah. And yeah. instead of having your fifth and sixth kid, how about bringing one in? Just one. Yeah. You know, I, so I always like, if we can just do one. Mm-hmm. And that's, I realize with Orphan World Relief, I get requests internationally weekly that I have to say no to. Programs from as far away as wow. Pakistan, 
Um, wow. Georgia, Soviet Georgia, all over the world, um, a lot in Africa. Number one, we don't have the resources to support them all. Sure. Um, but it's just heartbreaking that, you know, there's not someone there to support them. Right. Yeah. That you're getting, so you're getting asked from different organizations all over the world for support. help. Yeah. And, and you have to say no. Cause yeah. Because, I mean, we can end up giving 10 cents per orphanage. That doesn't right. do anything. doesn't do anything. We yeah. want to make sure we're having a, the monetary impact, as much a monetary, monetary impact as possible to help them thrive and grow their programs. Um, I, I did a, a um, what's the word, blog post 2016 on how to start an orphanage. Wow. And it's funny because if you type that in, it's like my LinkedIn article is like one of the first ones that pops up. It's gotten... So many hits, um, which has been great. Yeah. But basically, I tell people, don't. Come alongside the ones that exist. And, Makes sense. And, and help them grow and mature. There are so many well-meaning people out there, but they're going to like, oh, I'm just going to fly to Africa and start an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the culture? What are the restrictions there? Like Latin America, every five years, you basically have, like, your, your workers when you, in your orphanage get a check for basically a year's salary, like on a five-year period. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, that may have changed since then, but there, there are all these different things that you have to know. Yeah. And I'm like, instead of trying to do that, find an orphanage that's well-run, well-supported, come alongside them and help them grow and mature. Don't start something new. Yeah, that We makes don't need sense. new ones. We need great, stable ones. Yeah. So enhance the ones that are already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how can people get involved with your organization if they want to? Orphanworldrelief.org. Just go out there. Um, we're, we're building up a great staff. I just hired an amazing development manager. Oh, yeah? Who's, I, who is that? Her name is Kim, and she's, you see her all the time. I do see her all the time. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm so excited. I am so Everybody excited. is super pumped about it. Yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you there. She's been very, very excited. And... I realized we didn't even talk about our, our foster programs, but we've got two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, our foster to adult, which Mary Jo is getting off the ground. It's working with kids, getting them mentorships, ages 16 to 25, and give them that support system that they're missing. Because when they graduate from the foster care, they're on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have no support system. Can you talk about that? Because we hit on that at the beginning, but the yeah. whole concept of aging out. Aging out. Huge problem in America Um, Because if you think about it, we take these kids away from their families, most 99.9% of the time for very good reason, they've been abused and neglected, and say, we're going to take care of you now, but we take care of them until they're 18, and then we say, now you're done. Right. Now you're out on your own. I mean, I don't know if you remember uh, Amber, who goes to our sister church Awaken, she was 18, and her social worker picked her up. She wasn't done with high school yet. Mm -hmm. Social worker picked her up, said, where do you want me to take you? You're out of the system now. Wow. Fortunately, a friend of hers, uh, family let her sleep on the couch and get, finish high school. She put herself through college, and now she runs a nonprofit organization. Candle, the candle yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so what you're describing, is a kid turns 18, yeah. and they're done. They're it done. could be December. It could be March. It could be whatever month. Yeah. And they, they get taken out of a foster, and they're just basically on their own. They're on their own. There are some support systems available to them, like Starhouse in Columbus does offer some sort of um, residential support. 
But there's financial literacy that these kids have not gotten. Right. There is. I wasn't financially literate at age 18. No, most kids aren't. Yeah. You know, all these things, but you had a support system. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you weren't on your own. Right. I, I, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I can't imagine me turning 18 and then like, all right, yeah. go, go be an adult. Job, bank account, save. Yeah. Like, so what happened, like what, there has to be stats and stuff out there. So what typically happens? Uh, every year, 20,000 kids age out of foster care. And, and then what, out of that? Some of them, so uh, a good percentage of them will be homeless Jeez. for a period of time. Um, a good percentage of them will turn to, um, what's the word? Drugs, alcohol, um, theft uh-huh. to survive. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. Um, 80% of people in prison have one thing in common. They've been in foster care. 80%? 80%. 80%. Jeez. Yeah. And you think the other 20% are probably ones who grew up without a family support system. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. That's That's not everyone, you know, in prison. Sure. But But that's a staggering statistic. So if we can get involved in these kids' lives between hopefully age 16 and 25 and get them on the right path, we can then stem the tide of statistics that are going to face them of being hopeless, hungry, yeah, having to resort to theft, you know. I mean, that's that's just such a it's it's an interesting thing to think. When you do grow up, so I grew up with a really great support system. I grew up with a family. My parents didn't get divorced. You know, like that is a very unique kind of situation right. where my parents are like actually still together. Uh, my brothers and I got along for the most part, but at eighteen, I was not ready to be any kind of a an, an adult and to to have somebody turn 18 and then just expect that they can go out and right. function in society is absolutely insane. Does anybody like, I imagine that there's not necessarily like something in place where these, all of these kids would even know what's going to happen at age 18. There are. So the social workers try to work with them as much as possible. A friend of mine, mm. she and I worked together at an insurance company before and she left and she became a social worker she had eight kids that she knew were aging out, so she worked with them. That was her job to kind of come alongside them, work with them, try to get them as much support as she could um, okay. so that they were prepared when they turned 18. There are some states and some areas pushing the age to 21 uh-huh. to try to help some of that. Sure. But again, if you don't do something, an intervention to help these kids get a support system in place, they're going to turn 21 and still the same thing. It's, yeah, exact same situation just yeah. three years later. Right. Wow. Um, Okay, so yeah, so you mentioned a couple different things that Orphan World Relief does. What what other things are you guys doing that people could come in and help with? So our our I think our favorite program that people love to get involved with is our um, my Comfy Kids program. Comfy Kids, yep. So kids enter foster care all the time. What we do is we, a lot of times they show up with the clothes on their back, mm-hmm. and if they're a small child, that may just be a diaper, mm-hmm. and they're now in a new home mm-hmm. that they don't know the rules or anything. Nothing is theirs. So we put together backpacks, age, gender-appropriate backpacks that provides a change of clothing, a nightlight, a book, coloring book, a blanket, a stuffed animal. Wow. Even, even the 17-year-olds get a stuffed animal. Yeah. You know, something that's theirs. Yeah. And allows them to have a sense of dignity um, instead of maybe a few things shoved in a trash bag. Right. Because yeah. a lot of times they're taking from homes that they don't have a suitcase or anything like that. Shoved in a trash bag and there they are. Yeah. And so we try to provide them with a sense of dignity um, and a little bit of hope 
mm-hmm. um, to ease that that scary thing. I mean, think about it, if I were seven years old, taken from my family in the middle of the night, even though it may not be great, it's all I knew. And then now I'm, I'm in the middle of the night placed on the, in a new family's home. Right. I don't know the rules. I don't know anything. Nothing is mine. All these things around me aren't mine. Right. And this gives them something that's theirs that they can take with them. That's so, that's so awesome. So people could, I don't donate. They can donate. Yeah. You can go to our website and we have a list of uh, approved donation items for there. Um, and we've probably given out, we work with 12 different social uh, agencies around the state uh, right now. We have relationships with them. So they come to us and say, we think we're going to have you know 25 kids. So we prepare 25 backpacks of different ages and give it to them. Got it. And then they, they, they're right there and they give them to the kid when they enter foster care. You have to have heard some stories about the impact of those things. Yes. There was um, one, and I, I wish they sent us the picture, but we're, you know, we, we're not allowed to publish the pictures for privacy issues. Yep. Um, it was six kids, sibling group, got taken out of their home, um, and they, they got all six of them a backpack. And wow. It was just, the, the, these kids are like overjoyed that they've got something that's theirs. Yeah. Yeah. There was another story where a little boy, um, he got taken uh, out of his home like on a, a weekday. The next day, the foster parent took him to school to register him because now he's in a new school. Um, had his um, backpack with him the whole time. Took it into school. Got fell down and got you know horribly muddy over at recess mm-hmm. and was just so upset because I mean he's scared. He's in a new school now. He's yeah. All these things are new around him. Um, and they opened the backpack up and there was a change of clothes. So he changed <laughs> his clothes, went right back to school like nothing had happened. That's awesome. Back mm-hmm. to class. So yeah. That's, that's amazing. So people can find you. Did you did you pull up their website? Yeah, I got it. Uh, can you just say what it is? Orphanworldrelief.org. Yep. Orphanworldrelief.org. You said that a while ago. I just couldn't remember. I didn't want to botch it. That's okay. Orphanworldrelief.org. When's your book come out? I keep getting to ask that question. We're, <laughs> we're, we're like midway through our second review of it. Then we're going to turn it over to some editors okay? and then work with an, either an agent or we might do self-publishing again. Um, again? Because how many, how many have you already done? Five. Five. You've right. written five books? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I did. Are they fiction, nonfiction? Like- so the first one is a Bible study called Your Testimony. Okay. And then I wrote a book. A journal. I had a small business with a lovely lady named LaShondra. Uh-huh. She and I used to work together at a company, and then we formed our own business because we had all these people around us who didn't know what their passions were in life. Mm. So we helped them discover their passion in life. So we um, wrote a, uh, a journal to kind of walk them through every week, every day, a different wow. thing they could do to uh, learn about who they are and what to they want to do. To basically unpack themselves yeah. and figure out, wow. Yeah. And then there were a couple of books I wrote about um, just for fun. They're like not to be crude, like a quick toilet seat read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you could sit there and, re- and read the whole thing. Uh, randomish <laughs> one and randomish two. Randomish two is called Uncle Doug Wisdom because I have all these kids who call me Uncle Doug. And yeah, uh, uh, it's just little little things in life. Randomish one is all these things that I think but never say out loud, <laughs> like mashed potatoes and ketchup must never touch. Yeah, you know, I just put them all down there and just had fun with that. And then I have a collection of blog posts about adoption. Got that, it. That's out there as well. Got it. But so, the, so the one the what did you say it was? Something Buffalo is the title. I'd rather be a buffalo. I'd rather be a buffalo, which is a great title. Yeah. Um, it's to come out. Maybe what we should do then is have you back on, and we'll do a little like Jocko podcast style 
book review. Awesome. Have you ever heard one of Jocko's? No. The Jocko podcast. So he's a retired Navy SEAL. And he has guys that have written books on, and he'll read chunks of the book with the people. Um, one book that he read that was, it was he did, um, oh, what was called Machete Season. I think that's what it was called. Can you verify mm-hmm. that? Uh, he he wrote he read he read a book that a guy wrote after interviewing people that carried out the killings in Rwanda. Oh. Whoa. It's a, it's a rough. I read yeah. it. It's, yeah, it's machete season. I had to I had to read it in chunks because it's it's a it's a very hard read. And then he'll he'll bring on people that have written books about their time in Vietnam. He's had POWs on. He'll have tons of military guys on, oh, and absolutely. he just does these book reviews. So yeah, we'll do something like that where I'll read your book and then with Ask you, you cool questions yeah. have you on <laughs> read chunks of your book and then you can elaborate. Uh, on it, yeah. If you want, you got a little taste of it here because we already talked about a couple of the chapters that we're working on right now, which is oddly enough. <laughs> that's great. It's great. That, that's so that you can go get it done quicker. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we t- I've talked about potentially writing books. Oh, that's, he's got a the, bunch of books. The in one, him. the one was I think it was the second podcast that we did was with Patrick Skelton, where he mm. he came on and talked about his book of his novel. Yeah, they wrote, yeah. which is just cra- it's just crazy to me that somebody's just like I'm gonna write a book and then they actually do it they do because it, yeah. there's nobody that's like. You have to do this. It's a deadline. There's no like boss involved. It's up to you, right? It takes yeah. self discipline. Discipline. Yeah. Um, Kevin and I meet twice a week in the evenings, Tuesday and Friday nights, and we've we've spent an entire year going through the first uh, like whole review of it. Now we're going back through and adding some details, editing some things. Wow. Then we're going to get some people that we know to edit it, and that's great. And then either we made self publish. Um, which I've done that before. Sure. Your testimony I, I did through um, Christian Faith Publishing. Got it. Um, but the other ones I just did self-publish because they were fun and just... Because you could. Just but that's still impressive that you were able to carry that out. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get you a Kevin from somewhere. There you go. Oh, me? Yeah. yeah. Get me a Kevin You just need someone. Like, I need a Kevin. Everybody needs a Kevin. Everyone, everyone needs a Kevin. <laughs> Kevin, Greg, if you're out there, everyone needs you, buddy. Yes, way to go. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, okay, so... Um, just to kind of start wrapping things up here. Um, I learned so much during this episode and I'm really glad that you came on. So thanks for coming on and telling bits and pieces of your story. Thank you. I really hope folks that are listening that you kind of take the, the, the bits that Doug was able to share and think about just that concept. If one, if one family or one person in every single church uh, adopted that that would wipe out the foster care orphan situation. Correct. Um, yeah, there still be kids in foster care, but they're they're not all available for adoption. Got right. it. About okay. one hundred and ten thousand at any one time are available for adoption. Wow, that's not that many. Right. Yeah. That's that's yeah, too many for one family. Yes, correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. But still, if not we that all many. work for, together for most families right. that I know, and then and then I also just like the idea, and this is something I feel like I really learned when. Whichever, which which podcast episode was that, Melody? Um, that was that was season one. Right, season right? one. I was just so, curious what what one it was, but anyway, 10. one thing that she kind of elaborated on, and I hadn't really thought about, is the idea of not everybody, not everybody necessarily is in a place where they could, but everybody is in a place where they can do something. Yes. You are able to take some sort of action. If you can't adopt, you can foster. If you can't foster, 
you can volunteer. If you can't volunteer, you can give some, you know, a little bit of money, $5 a month. You know, if I had, you know, if five people gave $5 a month and they told five people to give $5 a month and they told five people, I mean, with just that little bit of five, five by five, we'd have hundreds of thousands of dollars to work with and to be able to make a massive impact. Yeah. You can do without a Starbucks once a month. You can take that five bucks. I do without it every month. (laughs) Yeah. You you can you can do without that five dollar thing that you buy. Yeah. Yes. Um, you can you can do without that milkshake or the, the the fries or whatever whatever it is. And and I mean I'm 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 talking to myself as yeah. much as I'm talking to anybody well, who's listening. It's episode nine. It's the community effect is what we mm. called it, which is totally what it is. And it's called Absolutely. My Village Ministries now. Correct. I believe. Yeah. So they they did have a change, and I haven't been able to have her on to kind of talk through that yet. But um, we have talked, and eventually. We will get her back um, to talk about what they're doing. Um, they're doing the same thing. I think it's just a different name, mm-hmm. My Village Ministries. Yeah. So that's a great episode. You can go listen to that. It's it's a slightly different take. It's more the idea is kind of rescuing people upstream before necessarily somebody ends up in foster care. That's the whole idea behind what they do. But um, there is need. There are people in need. And the, st- the stat that you had mentioned, 80% of people in prison, were in foster care at one point in time. Imagine if if that five bucks a month that you send, if that was to positively impact that statistic. Think Absolutely. think about it that way. Yep. It's I think we have the ability to make we're we're so used to only thinking that it it has to be this big elaborate thing like somebody has to I don't know, quit their job and go do something like, no, like five bucks. That's not very much, but the, the, the relative impact positively that something like that can have in every single human being can do that. You don't even have to be 18 no. to give right. five bucks a month. Um, I got paid $7 a month to do a paper route with my brothers, $7 a month. Uh, I could have afforded a, f- a few dollars, I guess. We had a young girl last year. She she organized at her high school a 5K. And really? she raised $5,000 on her own for us. Wow. Just got her friends together. She did a t-shirt. They had fun. And she raised $5,000 yeah. for you. See, there's lots of little people oh, out there, yeah. young people out there that have that kind Come of on. have that kind of gumption. You haven't been you haven't been tossed about by the world yet. You right. still have some I don't know, fire in you. So, yeah, I mean, th- those are those are great stories. So anyway, I, I learned so much. So thanks so much, Doug, for coming on. I want to give you an opportunity just to say any closing thoughts that you have, any words of encouragement, any things that you just how, however you want to close out the episode, man, you just go ahead and. You know, it's as simple as this. I, I like I said before, I used to um, help people figure out their passion in life. Mm. And I believe everyone, everyone's got gifts. Everyone's got passions. Everyone's got a soapbox, and I don't expect everyone to be on the orphan soapbox, but if everyone took, the, took time out of their month to stand on their personal soapbox mm-hmm. to make a difference, mm-hmm. imagine how different this world would be right. if we all took those things that really bother us and did one thing to make a difference about it each month. Yeah. We'd change the world overnight. You know, that's really great. That's a really great uh, statement, and- Everything that's so bad in our society is so in our face right now. If you take your face out of that and choose, choose to put something positive out, that's something that's come up a lot this season in the podcast is like producing something. Yes. Produ- don't be 
too much of a don't consumer, be a consumer. But put be something a, out there that makes it better. That's definitely not a quote from me. I don't remember who said that. Maybe it's it's probably know. some famous person out there said something <laughs> about that. But that that's not a Lance or Lancelot quote. So, but I mean, just the idea that you could make a small change and it could, yeah, it could make a massive impact on this world. That's Absolutely. I really I really love how you put that. So, thanks again, Doug, for coming on. Thank Look you. Forward to having you back soon. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>